at um, one of the five-day retreats that we had several years ago. As part of the closing, one uh, person that had sat for it uh, described his experience as one of enormous devotion. He said that the entire experience is just permeated with devotion. And I thought that was interesting because I never used the word devotion once. And, and so it is that you'll hear many, many uh, Dharma talks, talks about the path and many readings, and the word devotion doesn't come up much. And it's probably one of the most profound and invisible um, presences in the experience of practice. So, in that spirit, I wanted to speak some tonight about what is the role of devotion in Buddhist meditation. It's a word that has all sorts of flags that fly up for people when it's misunderstood. And so that's one of the reasons to talk about it. That devotion can be um, interpreted as some sort of a overly emotional kind of experience that's founded on some blind faith and you know has no balance to it and so on. And certainly it's true when our sense of devotion is narrow and riveted on something that has a pursuit to do with the self, making the self bigger or more defended. But it's an interesting question to ask yourself, you know, what am I devoted to? What this lifetime or in these years when my consciousness has become more awake, have I found myself devoted to? In the dictionary, the word devotion, one of the descriptions is to give up wholly, to give up to wholly, to let go into wholly. Devotion is the natural expression of unconditional love. With unconditional, unselfish love, there's no holding back. It comes out of a sense of interconnectedness. It expresses interconnectedness. It's the manifestation of letting go into, becoming one with. So on the mature spiritual path, and we have many names when I ask the question, what are you devoted to? We could come up with you know, many, many different names for it. But for most of us, it has to do with devoted to becoming more fully who we are, waking up, becoming whole, allowing ourselves to love fully without holding back. We're devoted to that quality of freedom to be all that we can be. Devotion manifests when, at least for me, when I look around and in myself, as a wholeheartedness, that in, what, in whatever it manifests as wholehearted living. And it was described this way, um, Arrhenius, who was a, from the second to third century, said, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. Just that, fully alive. So in different mystical traditions, love and devotion are expressed in a multitude of ways, ranging from elaborate kinds of ritual and effusive dancing to prayer to much quieter, simple service, simply being in solitude. It can have many ways. But without it, without the energy of devotion, the resolve, the intentionality, there's no motivation 
to do and be all that we can be. It's Carl Jung puts it this way, he says, nothing is possible without love. For love puts one in a mood to risk everything, not to withhold the important elements. It puts us in the mood to risk everything. So the Buddha, when he basically offered the teachings of practice, emphasized two different components that we're all cultivating that are entirely interdependent. And we've talked about this, I've described these as the two wings. Some of you will remember I use that term a lot so that the bird can fly and be free. And one wing is the wing of clear seeing, to see what is true, to understand, to have the wisdom to know what is true in this moment. And the other wing is that of love, of compassion, of what tonight I'm describing of as the devotion or the energy towards giving ourselves wholly. If you just have wisdom, if you just practice the kind of mindfulness where, okay, I'm going to notice what's here and what's here and just be wakeful in this moment, without the softness of the heart, it's very dry. It's been described that, that the love element gives the juiciness to the path. And yet, If we just practice in a devotional way, just cultivate and awaken the heart without the clarity of mindfulness, devotion becomes narrowed into attachment. That's why it's got its its bad reputation, so to speak. Devotion gets attached to, devoted to more money, more recognition, this person, this practice versus just opening itself. The Buddha taught this kind of balancing of seeing clearly what's true and holding with love when he described five divine abodes. And the divine abodes are called the Brahma Viharas and they include loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. It's four, so it was four. Equanimity is the quality of awareness that does not cling, but sees what's true. And he taught, and when he taught the divine abodes, there was a real purposefulness in teaching equanimity as one of them, that we can't have true freedom in the three that have to do with the awakening of the heart if we don't have that clarity, that wisdom to see what's true. When I first got involved with spiritual practice um, 20-some years ago, and I lived in an ashram, the primary activities we were doing were devotional practices. We'd spend, you know, two and a half, three hours every morning chanting and doing concentrative meditation and prayer. All the kind of practices that wake up and open the heart and you can feel ecstatic and blissful and a sense of the divine everywhere and belonging to it all. And it was quite beautiful and beautiful enough that I stayed for quite a number of years with that practice. But there was a downside that I came to realize after I began to practice mindfulness, which was that I attached the beautiful states that arose to doing this practice or studying with that teacher. And there was a lot of self-sense involved I attached when I was feeling expansive and blissful, ah, I must be getting it together, you know, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. 
And when I couldn't open, when I couldn't feel that sense of, of absorption and bliss, like it, there was some impurity that was, you know, who I was. So there was a lot of self involved. And it wasn't until really getting into mindfulness practice that I saw that the experience that arose were beautiful, just like different weather systems, but there was no freedom in them if I was attaching them to this teacher or that sense of self. So equanimity gives us the freedom to love fully, to love in a balanced and complete way. So I'd like to describe some different ways that this devotional quality of heart arises for us. And the first is in our longing that we all, as humans, have a quality of longing. And sometimes, if we're very preoccupied and busy, it takes the shape of feeling driven. And I need to have this happen, and I need to graduate from that, or get the right partner, or have more food, or get this person to recognize this, or cure this part of my body. It's, there's a, a driven, grasping quality. But when we open underneath the grasping, for all of us, there's a much deeper quality of longing, which is really longing for the divine, for freedom, for wholeness. We all want to love and be loved. And that's perhaps one of the ways that that deeper quality of longing most takes shape. And the longing for love is love. We can't long for something unless we already know it unless it's already something that we experience intuitively is who we are. The longing for love is love. The longing for truth comes from the place in us that already intuits truth. So longing, those deep feelings of longing, is the energy that brings us to practice, or that allows us to really give ourselves as parents or to some creative endeavor that allows us to serve other people when in need. And yet, when it's contracted by fear and attachment, it causes suffering. We can see it very clearly, at least I can with children, because that's my main area that I act out my attachments on a daily basis is in, in parenting. That if I'm in that more open place of, well, darling, I care about your suffering, and I really yearn for your happiness, then when my son is behaving unskillfully, I can respond in a wise way or a creative way. There's some, some space for it. But if I'm rather in a space of, I'm afraid you're not going to turn out right, or what, how does this reflect on my adequacy as parenting, or one of those things, there's reactivity. It's all still longing, but sometimes it gets contracted, and then we have to pay clearer attention. For most of us, this is true, whether it's work or love, as, as Freud said, we have these longings to manifest and be free and be open and be all we can be, and we have all this conditioning of fear and wanting that gets it confused, that makes us more small. This is a story um, somebody sent me. They found it on the internet, and I really liked it. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly. When he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of satisfying this deep longing of becoming a pilot. 
Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him. When he was finally discharged, he had to satisfy himself with watching jets fly over his backyard. One day, Larry had a bright idea. He decided to fly. He went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, would measure more than four feet across. Back home, Larry securely strapped the balloons to his sturdy lawn chair. He, <laughs> he anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with the helium. He climbed on for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. Satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and a six-pack of Miller Lite, loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few balloons when it was time to descend, and went back to the floating lawn chair. <laughs> he tied himself in along with his pellet gun and provisions. Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard after severing the anchor, and in a few hours come back down. Things didn't quite work out that way. When he cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he didn't float lazily up to 30 or so feet. Instead, <laughs> he streaked into the LA sky as if shot from a cannon. He, did, he didn't level at 30 feet, nor did he level off at 100 feet. After climbing and climbing, he leveled off at 11,000 feet. <laughs> at that height, he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. So he stayed there, drifting, cold and frightened, for more than 14 hours. Then he really got in trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach corridor of the Los Angeles International Airport. <laughs> A United pilot first spotted Larry. <laughs> he radioed the tower and described passing a guy in a lawn chair <laughs> with a gun. <laughs> with a gun. <laughs> Radar confirmed the existence of an object floating 11,000 feet above the airport. <laughs> LAX emergency procedures swung into full alert, and a helicopter was dispatched to investigate. LAX is right on the ocean. Night was falling, and the offshore breeze began to flow. It carried Larry out to sea <laughs> with, the with the helicopter in hot pursuit. <laughs> Several miles out, the helicopter caught up with Larry. Once the crew determined that Larry was not dangerous, they attempted to close in for a rescue, but the draft from the blades would push Larry away whenever they neared. <laughs> Finally. The elevator ascended to a position several hundred feet above Larry and lowered a rescue line. Larry snagged the line and was hauled back to shore. The difficult maneuver was flawlessly executed by the helicopter crew. As soon as Larry was hauled to earth, he was arrested by waiting members of the LAPD for violating LAX law airspace. He was led away in handcuffs, a reporter dispatched. To cover the daring rescue, one asked why he had done it. Larry stopped, turned, and replied nonchalantly, a man can't just sit around. <laughs> he was called the 1997 Darwin Award winner. They give this Darwin Award for um, people that have the most, um, uh, they say the person who did the gene pool the biggest service by killing, injuring themselves in the most extraordinarily stupid way. And he was one of the only people to survive, so. so Longing. We have these longings. <laughs> How do we get back to where we were here? <laughs> and sometimes they're from such a deep place that by following them, we awaken our hearts and become free. 
And sometimes they have enough grasping around them that we get into trouble. So a lot of our path is to pay attention to really open to the longings, not push them away, but sense the depth, the place they're coming from. Healthy longing, the urge to become more fully who we are. John O'Donohue says, if you succeed in awakening this longing and inhabiting it, then you come fully into divine presence. I think that's really beautiful. If you succeed in awakening and inhabiting this longing, you come fully into divine presence. We don't listen so much to our deepest longings. We get preoccupied. So really our path and what really awakens the devotional heart is to open to what's there. We all have it and we also have the condition to get attached. So the question that comes up so often is, how do I open fully to the longing and to the love that's there without getting snagged, without being attached? We're afraid. We're afraid to live fully because we might mess up. So we hold back. We play it safe. How to open to the longings that really are deep in our beings and yet not get caught? The response that the Buddha gave because his whole question on this earth was how to work with attachment was to go ahead and let longing be there to go ahead and open to it but keep being mindful to not push it away out of fear that we open to the longing we open to the energy that's under it we see the stories that arise we see the fears the wanting the grasping and stay open to the energy because the energy itself will liberate us. It's the energy that will bring us to that sense of sacred presence. To give you an example a little that really moved me uh, several years ago, a very good friend of mine who's also a teacher um, fell in love with a married man and she fell deeply, deeply in love. It was very, very, it was mutual and they were very good on their boundaries and yet it was a very profound experience for her. And she struggled with longing because everything, all her flags were up that to make room, to open to longing was like, you know, the path to, to hell for her. I mean, it was, there was enormous amounts of shame and pain. And so she went to a number of retreats and found that every time the longing came up and her reaction was to push it away, that she became smaller and tighter and more suffering was there. So under the guidance of um, another teacher, started practicing saying yes to longing. And what that meant was she was not only saying yes to all the longing, but she was saying yes to the grief about loss and yes to the shame. She was really opening big. And as she described it, that it was the most profound experience of falling in love in her life because by saying yes to the longing and opening to the energy was there, she discovered the love was the boundless love of her own heart. That it didn't have to attach itself. It was, certainly there was all the inclinations to attach it to another being, but it was really her love. Not her in a sense of possessive, but it was just the love that was vast, boundless, and there. And she grew to really trust the power of her own heart and worked with the grief and worked with the loss around not having it work out in her outer world 
the way she wanted it. I thought that was a really beautiful story because she said that she felt that she really came home. That every time she tried to push away how she felt, she felt like she was pushing away her own being. And by really just opening to it and opening to the energy under it, which is the longing of our souls to commune, she came home to what was most true. That which longs for love is love. It's not outside us. We lose ourselves, we lose our sense of our own being in a painful way when we attach it to the outside. Now, one very natural expression of longing is prayer. And just to say that um, I did a lot of prayer in my ashram days, and when I left the ashram, um, my first understanding of Buddhism was, well, you don't, you know, you don't put out a lot of prayers because that's just duality. It's like little me praying to that big deed up there. It just reinforces a sense of duality and smallness, and, and really it's just about opening to the moment, and it's all here right now, and there's nothing outside or in, you know, that kind of thinking. So for a number of years, I didn't so much, but uh, that changed over the last five, six years. And what many people find is that when we're feeling a sense of longing and even a sense of smallness to, in a very sincere way, voice that, to, to use supplication, to ask for help, for love, for freedom, is a way of reconnecting with the boundless nature of our own hearts. It doesn't reaffirm separateness and smallness, but rather it brings us back home. This is Rumi. In times of sudden danger, most people call out, oh my God, why would they keep doing this if it didn't help? (laughs) Only a fool keeps going back where nothing happens. The whole world lives within a safeguarding, fish inside waves, birds held in the sky, all exist or held in the divine. Nothing is ever alone for a single moment. All giving comes from there. No matter who you think you put your open hand out toward, it's that which gives. So what I found, and this was not in my early practice, is that in many schools of Buddhism, it's, it's a part of the practice, supplication, just asking for at the beginning of practice, in which I do now, and every time I sit, you know, may I awaken, may these moments be filled with the awakening of the heart. And in that asking, that very sincerity in supplication brings us more deeply into who we are. To ask at the end, may this be of benefit to all beings reconnects us with that sense of being part of this beautiful, sacred universe. So again, this is from O'Donohue. He writes that all our drives to gain money, recognition, possession of other beings, are really, in a masked way, desperate attempts to bring the restless longing for the divine within us to peace. All this busy coming and going we do through the day is from this deep longing to belong 
longing to awaken to our true nature. So again, to reflect for a moment, there's an exercise we sometimes do, some of you have done it here, where we ask each other, what do you want? And you just keep asking the question, what do you want? What do you want? And it's a similar way we can ask, you know, what is it you long for? What is it that you feel devoted to? Our practice is to pay attention to that, to even a flicker of the depth that we long for intimacy, that we long for connection, to pay attention and to open and to be willing to open to that and with it all the grasping and all the fear, the tendrils that stay attached. Because in the opening to what's there, we become that openness. We become the openness, we become the space that is free, is filled with heart. So one aspect of the awakening heart of devotion is this longing. Another is when, our, when we feel a sense of fullness, of abundance, of overflowing, and it comes in the shape of generosity. And as many of you know, when we really feel generous, there's a sense of, ah, yeah, this is just such a sweet, beautiful sense. It's, we come to the part of our beings that we're most at home with because there's freedom in generosity. Albert Schweitzer said, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, the only ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. So generosity and service is a practice, and like like longing, it too can get contracted. In our generosity, we can get caught in fear, like I have something to lose or we can get caught in wanting, like we want recognition for what we give. So conditioning comes wrapped around all these awakening states, and yet our practice is to go ahead and have that willingness to take the risk, and then watch what comes up. Watch what comes up. Galway Cannell says, the bonfire you kindle can light the great sky, Though it's true, of course, to make it burn, you have to throw yourself in. That's true generosity when there's really a giving of our being. And when we really give of ourselves, it's an expression of devotion. There's a sense of coming home. This is the real sense of beingness. There's one teacher from IMS that described it, that one of his ways of practicing generosity was if he even got a notion to give something, he was committed to doing it. Like anything that came up in his mind, it's kind of dangerous, you know, because you never know what's going to come up, especially when you get these envelopes for charitable giving, like the first figure that flashes $2,000 and oh my, you know, and then he'd go ahead and do it. But it's a way of, it's a way of giving up, of, of letting go of all this controlling and protecting we do of self. And there's enormous sense of freedom when we relax into giving. I have a friend who's what's called a bhakti yogi. His main path really is service. And um, he describes it this way. He says that the more he serves, the less he feels any self that's there, and the more there's just being. He gets lost in serving, in the most positive sense of the word. 
So again, another reflection that we sometimes do is of times or moments when we uh, did a good deed, an act of kindness. And you can reflect for a moment if you like, in the last days or weeks, when you felt that sense of generosity, of giving. As you reflect, just to say, we've all done it, and yet our relationships to ourselves are such that we don't acknowledge. Are we second-guess and say, yeah, but that was really selfish because actually I did it because, you know? It's very hard to acknowledge. And just to encourage you, not just only here, but just to be aware of when there's that impulse, or the impulse and the follow-through, to really extend, and what is it like? And do you let yourself enjoy giving? This is a story written by Pastor John R. Ramsey called The Flower. For some time I've had a person provide me with a rose to pin on the label of my suit every Sunday. Because I always got a flower on Sunday morning, I really did not think much of it. It was a nice gesture that I appreciated, but it became routine. One Sunday, however, what I considered ordinary became very special. As I was leaving the Sunday service, a young man approached me, really a boy. He, worked, he walked right up to me and said, Sir, what are you going to do with your flower? At first I did not know what he was talking about, but then I understood. I said, do you mean this, as I pointed to the rose pinned to my coat? He said, yes, sir, I would like it if you were just going to throw it away. And at this moment I smiled and gladly told him he could have my flower, casually asking him what he was going to do with it. The little boy, who was probably less than 10 years old, looked at me and said, sir, I'm going to give it to my granny. My mother and father got divorced last year. I was living with my mother, but when she married again, she wanted me to live with my father. I lived with him for a while, but he said I could not stay, so he sent me to live with my grandmother. She is so good to me. She cooks for me and takes care of me. She has been so good to me that I want to give that pretty flower to her for loving me. When the little boy finished, I could hardly speak. My eyes filled with tears, and I knew I had been touched in the depths of my soul. I reached up and unpinned my flower. With the flower in my hand, I looked at the boy and said, Son, that is the nicest thing I've ever heard, but you can't have this flower because it's not enough. If you'll look in front of the pulpit, you'll see a big bouquet of flowers. Different families buy them for the church each week. Please, take those flowers to your granny because she deserves the very best. If I hadn't been touched enough already, he made one last statement, and I will always cherish it. He said, what a wonderful day. I asked for one flower, but got a beautiful bouquet. So giving touches our hearts, opens our hearts, and frees us. And that's another expression of devotion, of this willingness to wholly give our being for the sake of love. There's longing, there's generosity, there's also the awakening of devotion as a response to beauty and as a response to pain. As some have said it, this whole of this earth and all its expressiveness is a call 
to us. It calls out the devotion of our hearts. So in the face of pain, as we've talked about here many times, the natural expression of an open heart is compassion. It's been described as the quivering of the heart in response to pain. That when we're devoted, when we're willing to feel the connectedness and be there, we naturally respond with compassion. Now, like other expressions of the heart, compassion too can be layered with grasping and fear. We can feel compassion in a sense, but it can turn to pity, like distancing, like that person out there that we feel sorry for that's away from us, and there's a little bit of a sense of superiority. Our compassion can be laced with the kind of fear where we want to control and make it better. We're not just willing to be with. It's, you see it a lot with people that jump immediately into problem solving and cannot just be in the space of, okay, there's pain. So compassion, we, we grow with. We learn to relax and be there with what's true. In the face of pain, the awakening and devotional heart responds with compassion. In the face of beauty, we respond with joy and with gratitude. We don't sometimes let ourselves see what's there. There's an enormous abundance. This world is always presenting us with with the beauty of nature and of life, and yet our preoccupation keeps us small. So there's this sense that that beauty is another calling if we're willing to open our eyes. There's uh, the Greek word for beauty is tasalon or takalon. And the word kalin, which is a part of that, has the notion of call, that there is in beauty a call to the divine that's within us. There's some wonderful stories about Ramakrishna, who is an Indian saint who is just known for his um, enormous heart. And it's said that his disciples were sometimes hesitant to bring him something like a beautiful flower, because one flower would send him off into three days of total ecstatic absorption. (laughs) Nobody could talk to him, you know. So responsive was he to, to beauty. So like all qualities of the heart, it happens naturally, and we can be more intentional, more willing to to have that receptive quality when we slow down and really pay attention to the look of the sky, to the sounds around us, to the beauty in the faces of the beings that we love. This is um, from the Carlos Castaneda books. It describes Don Gennaro. It says, Gennaro, who's another sorcerer, Gennaro's love is the world. He was just now embracing this enormous earth, but since he's so little, all he can do is swim on it. But the earth knows that Gennaro loves it and bestows him its care. And that's why Gennaro's life is filled to the brim, and a state wherever he will be will be plentiful. Only the love of this splendorous life can give freedom to a warrior spirit. And this freedom is joy, efficiency, and abandon in the face of any odds. That's the last lesson, that always left for the last moment, for the moment of ultimate solitude. When the person faces their death and aloneness, only then does it make sense. 
that when we really come into the present, face that it's changing, it's changing so fast. These lives are passing so fast. When we really realize that, we can open our hearts to the enormous beauty. We can let ourselves fall in love with this life. So under all these ways of the heart's awakening, of the awakening of devotion, there is the core understanding and experience of connectedness. It's connectedness that brings us to longing. We long to live in that sense of communion. It's connectedness that allows us to feel the abundance and the generosity. It's connectedness that allows our heart to respond to pain with compassion and to beauty with joy. And there are ways in our practice as we sit that we can actually drop in more and more in a wakeful way to that sense of connectedness. So what I'd like to do tonight is end, let me see how much time I've left, it's pretty good, is to end with a a guided meditation that explores some of the different ways in Buddhist practice that we can awaken these dimensions of our heart. But before I do, I can see you're moving around and ready to shift, I just want to speak a little bit about the different practices that open us in these ways, just to give you a sense of the span of them. We've already talked about reflecting. You can reflect on on pain and really feel, if you sense somebody that you love in pain, really sense the heart quivering in that response of compassion, or reflect on beauty. Another way that our practice opens us is by really opening to the life in the body. In a moment that we soften into our body and open, we really connect with the body of the earth and with life everywhere. So the kinesthetic, being awake to the senses. Another way we do it is through the phrases that are intentional with metta and prayer. Metta is a loving kindness practice. That in a moment, if with sincerity, we put out that prayer, you know, may my heart awaken may all beings be free. Whatever we put out with care connects us with the boundless care of our own hearts. So there's the practice, the supplications, the invocations, the prayer. And then there's the visual. This we don't talk about so much. I think I might have mentioned some months ago that one man who was very frightened went to the Dalai Lama and said, you know, what to do? And he said, just visualize that you're being held in the arms of the Buddha. There's enormous power to visualization, to being able to visualize in some way whatever manifestation works for you of light and love and care, and sense that as a circle holding you. There's a tremendous amount of comfort and beauty in that. And then one of the most universal ways in practice that that sense of connectedness is invoked is through chanting. Every spiritual tradition has some form of chanting or song as a way of bypassing our our kind of cognitive thinking mind and opening our hearts. So what we'll do tonight is is a mix of that. And just to say a little more about chanting, because some people are at first are unfamiliar with it, but I find for the most, once you just start doing it, it um, can be very, very healing. Um, It truly is in every tradition. It's in Genesis. I wrote down something. We all know that 
first there was the Word and the Word was made into flesh, it also says, God breathed in humans the breath of life. This was vibrating breath. It was primordial sound that manifested into flesh and form and into phenomenon and creation. So that as we chant sounds, sounds are like this tuning device into sound itself. And so that as you listen your way into sound, you realize that you're tuning the dial of your own consciousness. And it keeps going deeper and deeper, opening the heart, until you're no longer making the sound. The sound is itself creating experience. Ramdas told a story. Um, he did a lot of chanting for many years with people. And they used to gather and chant um, the mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Hare, Hare Rama. And they do it in um, a barn together up in New England. So in one story he told, his father came in one day and stood there and was listening to a while, listening for a while, and they're chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, and so on. So finally, afterwards, his father says, who is this guy Hare Krishna you're singing to? And why do you have to keep singing the same thing over and over again? I mean, it's a pretty tune, but enough already. Because no. <laughs> there they are repeating. <laughs> But the power is in the repetition. The power is that we let the word sink deeper and deeper into our hearts and bodies. And chanting is a way of bringing together the body, the mind, and the heart. One teacher I sat with recently, Sokni Rinpoche, described the reasons for chanting. He said, non-human spirits will hear, whoever can hear will hear, and what's chanted is true, and it gladdens the heart of whoever listens, including your own inner being. So I'll leave it with that for now. Um, why don't you take a few moments to stretch your legs, and then we'll sit together. For this sitting, sit in a way that's quite comfortable. You still want to be alert and balanced, but make sure that you really are at ease. This won't be long. Begin by coming into stillness. The Taoists and the Buddhists both teach the power of the imagery of a smile. So we begin with the smile down, starting by feeling a smile at the corners of the eyes. If you haven't done this before, just really allow yourself to experiment. The eyes are smiling, softening the flesh around the corners of the eyes. And letting the sense of a smile drift down the face, the mouth, and a slight smile, but a real smile. The corners of the eyes are smiling. The mouth is smiling. 
Feeling a smile, the shape and sense of a smile in the throat. Loosening, opening there. Again, the eyes are smiling. The mouth. the throat, then letting a smile move down into the chest and into the heart, softening and opening there, feeling what's there, so the sense of a smile can radiate out, relaxing and loosening the arms, Moving down into the belly, relaxing, softening there. Take a few deep breaths so that you can feel in the fullness the body you breathe in. Smiling into the body, opening and relaxing as you breathe. Feeling the body expanding and contracting with each breath. For now, letting the focus be on the rising and falling of the abdomen. Feeling the breath deep within. Let awareness receive the beginning, middle, and end of each in-breath and of each out-breath, expanding and contracting the belly. Sitting down more deeply into the body, letting go into the body, noticing the constantly changing flow of sensation with the in-breath, with the out-breath. Begin to soften more deeply around all these sensations. Let the breath breathe itself in a softening belly. Soften the belly to receive the breath, to receive sensation, to experience life in the body. Soften the muscles that have held the fear for so long, that have defended Soften the tissue, the blood vessels, the flesh. Letting go of the holding of a lifetime. Letting go into soft belly, merciful belly. Relaxing deeply. Softening what's there, whatever mood, grief, mistrust, excitement, anger that's held so hard in the belly, softening now. Levels and levels of softening. Levels and levels of letting go. 
moment to moment, allow each breath its full expression in soft belly. Let go of hardness, let it float in something softer and kinder. Let thoughts come and go, floating like bubbles in the spaciousness of soft belly. Holding to nothing, softening, softening. Let the healing in, in kindness and tenderness to yourself, softening the belly, opening the passageway to the heart. In this softness, there's room to be born and room to die, room for what arises, room for what passes. In this softness is the vast spaciousness in which to heal and awaken the heart, to discover our connection, our unbounded nature. Letting go into the softness more deeply now. Let everything float in this softness, in this openness. aware of what arises and passes in consciousness, that it all rises and passes in this soft, open space of your heart. A very open attention, receptive to sounds, to moods, to sensations, a receptivity and care for the life that arises, letting it float free. In this open space of awareness, to invite you now in a visual way to imagine some embodiment of compassion and wisdom. For many, it might be a figure. You might see eyes of caring, a bodhisattva, a sense of the divine that's embodied. And if you're not too visual, not to worry, just sense it energetically. In this traditional visualization, The embodiment of compassion and wisdom is seen about three meters in the air, radiating light, sitting on a lotus. Now you can visualize it however you wish. Sensing light, sensing love, sensing wakefulness, visually in front of you, with that light radiating out and surrounding you. 
the light from the brow of this being, if you're imaging a being, is a light of purity, of clarity, of wisdom. You can sense that light coming to your own brow. Softly penetrating and opening, bringing you that quality of clarity, of wisdom. And light from this being's throat to your throat, which is said to allow pure and helpful speech. Feeling and imagining that. And light from this being's heart to your heart, cleansing and releasing, clinging, resistance, delusion, freeing your heart to love fully. Feeling this radiance of light coming towards you, permeating, holding you. Ask for whatever blessing is in you to ask. Speak your longing. Ask for the blessing of support, of awakening, of freedom, whatever it is, to say your prayer with the sincerity of your own heart's longing. after the supplication or prayer to sense that that light that is radiating out is merging and becoming one with your own light, feeling yourself one with that being, your own being radiant, awake, open. Resting in the caring presence, the heart of the awakened being. Letting all that arise float in this space of compassionate awareness. The mantra Om Namah Shivaya. Om is infinite. Namah I bow. Shivaya, creation, destruction. This is bowing to the divine that's within and around us. We'll be chanting this together. There'll be music to join in with in a few moments. But again, the words are Om Namah Shivaya. So just feeling your heart and chanting from the heart in a relaxed, open way.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.